I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And I'm Michael Garneri. And we love to watch. This week, we love to watch Ned Beatty and John Voight match shirts. So I, I'm honestly, I'm honestly not sure. Did you pronounce it the way that I said it? Because isn't that what I said? That was no. nothing like what you said. Okay. You don't even know what it is that you said, let alone my name. You said something that none of those syllables were correct. Okay. I <laughs> Listeners, we found a weird black hole in my name where not only can I not say uh, Michael's last name, even with coaching uh, on previous episodes <laughs> from Peter... But hearing it, and it sounds like there's something in my brain that's going, yeah, that's what you said. Well, that's it's exactly like, what you said. It's like, have you seen season five of Buffy the Vampire Slayer? I have, yeah. You know how Ben is glory, but yeah. because of cosmic bullshit, every time that's revealed, people forget it? It's like yep. that. Except it's just yep. localized in one person and related <laughs> yep. to my name. Spo- spoilers Sorry, for season a- five of Buffy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, spoilers for uh, a TV show that ended like uh, ten years ago. If, if any listeners have noticed, I've made Peter announce our upcoming guest every week because I can't say his last name. So, well, if I knew uh, that you were going to mention me on last week's podcast, I would have listened. Come on, you've you've been mentioned on like the last three or four months. Holy shit! What am I doing? I don't know. Apparently, not being a good guest who does his homework on his friend's podcast. Oh, damn. <laughs> Um, so Michael, uh, Michael is one of our uh, fellow friends from the Dissolve Commentariat. Uh, Michael and I have met before. Uh, Michael and I uh, met for drinks at the Music Box mm-hmm. once. Yeah, back yeah, in December. Yeah, but yeah, we're uh, we wanted to bring Michael on because uh, Michael does some uh, really terrific online film. Oh, writing, thank you. And he's uh, basically become uh, an online buddy. Um, as well as a meat space buddy now, I guess an online buddy and an online uh, chum is what I prefer. An online yeah. chum. <laughs> a chum. You would invite to a box social yeah. or a, a Right, or event. to like pick uh, the pocket of a rich gentleman. <laughs> uh, well, actually, Michael, before so before Peter tells all the interesting things about you, actually, you could probably go on for a while. Uh, Michael, why don't you tell us three things about yourself in a segment we like to call Three Things About Yourself. <laughs> three things about myself. All right. First thing about myself. I think it's pretty interesting. I can put both my legs behind my head. So that's All right. Well, cool. thanks for joining us, Michael. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's true. How did you uh, figure this one out? Was it a terrible, terrible accident? And you just no, no. Oh god. No, I'm. No, I'm. I'm just. I'm very unusually flexible. I always have been since I was a kid. I don't know why. Uh, I used to put my leg up in school. I would put my leg up on my desk, like perpendicular to myself, and <laughs> it would. And I didn't realize that people, other people, didn't do that. I was, yeah. And I was. The I first can, day at kindergarten was awkward. <laughs> no, I'm serious though. Like I was standing at one point. I think this was in like 
freshman year high school. I was standing completely with what ballerinas call turnout, where your feet point in the complete opposite direction of each other. And I was just doing that naturally. And I've always been very flexible for some reason. I don't know if there's some kind of jellyfish gene that's kind of been passed <laughs> down. But uh, the second thing about me that is interesting. This September, you should go down to your local bookstore. If you buy Matt Zoller Seitz's new book, The Oliver Stone Experience, uh, it's a very nice coffee table book from Abrams Books. Contained within those pages will be an essay written by yours truly, Michael Garneri. Yeah, pretty yeah, cool, I'm, right? This is sort of a this is sort I'm, of a dream come true for for Michael because uh, Michael's been a fan of uh, MZS for uh, a long time. Yeah, he's actually kind of how I got into film writing. Like I've always been interested in film and and been an enthusiast but he was really the one who through his essays and through his video essays really showed me how talking about film can be an art unto itself so it it was been it was real honor to be given this opportunity by matt zoller seitz who is a writer that i admire so greatly and uh and by oliver stone who is uh an artist i admire greatly and i think is massively underrated and so this september uh pick that book up because i'm in it yep and and uh yeah so how long michael before you uh, all about eve matt and uh try and uh steal his position his power and totally replace him six weeks ago <laughs> <laughs> this is just a humble a humble first step into the uh the grand invasion that right now yeah right now it hasn't happened yet by the time this podcast drops though hey, who knows i mean you know <laughs> like it's like ferris bueller said life moves pretty fast sometimes you got a single white female someone <laughs> that is from ferris bueller it is it is yeah he was he was prescient about uh films of bridget fonda that would be coming out in the future mm-hmm. <laughs> um. uh number three Oh, here's a cool one for this this uh, this uh, uh, week. It's related. I went to Transylvania University, which is not in Romania. It's in Kentucky, and one of the most famous people to have gone there didn't graduate. Was Ned Beatty? Oh, yeah, that's awesome. That's all. Uh, did the um, actor? I, <laughs> nope, just a guy named Ned Beatty. <laughs> no, no, the the actor, <laughs> famous failed surfer Ned Beatty. <laughs> that's pretty interesting. Um, but yeah, that's a pretty terrific uh, three facts about yourself, uh, Michael. Oh God, such passion, passive aggression, right there. <laughs> yeah, or like, uh, you know, num- num- I, I, I that's mean, just how I sound no. when I'm excited about things. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right, all right, uh, all right. Well, let's get started with our first segment now, Michael. Uh, we've we're doing something that we've only done once before, which is our opening segment before we start talking about uh, 1972's Deliverance is not about Deliverance. It's not about anything else, but it has been specifically designed for you, our guest. Okay. So I think I think it's fair to say that in the in the dissolve uh, comment group where we all met, <laughs> that you're kind of considered uh, the bad boy of the dissolve group. <laughs> Now, you know, if, if you don't know, he's Michael's not afraid to say things like, uh, yeah, that's that's probably a wig. 
Um, not, not, to, <laughs> not, not to other dissolved commenters, but like actors in movies. Um, right, he'll, right, he'll say, yeah. here's a picture of something I like. And if someone goes, well, I don't like that, he'll go, well, here's another picture of something I like. Um, <laughs> you know, like my, yeah. God, this is like, I'm seeing my life, you know, just reflected right back at <laughs> yeah, me. No, this, continue, is, though. this is our version. This is, we love to watch version of this is your life. Now, Michael, uh, <laughs> you may not be aware of this, but Hollywood is actually filled with a lot of people that have been considered bad boys. And we wanted yes. to see how you stacked up to some of those legends now <laughs> okay ideally ideally we would have had some of these bad boys uh come on our show to do battle <laughs> with you uh but that that proved to be a little bit logistically impossible uh many of them oh, are, many of them are dead and a lot of them <laughs> didn't return our phone calls now uh there were no phone calls to return because information was being a real dick and not giving <laughs> us any of their phone numbers but so what, what we're gonna do here is uh i'm gonna name a hollywood bad boy okay give them a few of the reasons that they're considered uh, a bad boy, some of their bad boy credentials. And then I'm going to propose a competition between you two about whether you could hypothetically defeat this bad boy at them. Now, you have to say, yes, you could beat them and then give a reason why you would defeat this person at the whatever the task is. Or okay. you can you can say, no, uh, no, I could not beat them and explain why that would be the case, too. Now, either way, uh, based on your explanation... Uh, even if you say no, you can get ruled against you by Peter, who's going to be our judge to determine whether, based on your answers and reasons, you would have bested some of these famous rabble-rousers at these hypothetical competitions. So are you ready to play, P Michael? I am ready. All I'm right. ready. I'm ready to be bad. All right. Ultimate God. bad boy. bad boy that you'll be doing hypothetical competition with is uh, Marlon Brando. Now, uh -huh. his bad boy credentials, he refused to accept his Academy Award in person. He didn't really seem to care uh, that much about being in movies, and he ate excess of the recommended 2,500 calories per day. Now, Michael, do you think that you could defeat Brando in an arm wrestling competition? I'm just going to say right now, no. Um, my arms are very thin and lithe and don't have much strength to them. Plus, I think Brando's weight advantage would cause him to have a fulcrum effect, which would allow me to be pulverized, even if his own arm strength were not comparable to his excessive bodily weight. So in the spirit of honesty, I have to say, if this is Brando at any point past mm, 1974-ish, I think he would definitely win. Okay, it was Brando 2016. Peter, your judgment? <laughs> uh, as the, uh, there was no clarity on whether or not uh, he was dealing with a uh, Brando on the, the you know, top of his prime or a Brando past his prime. Uh, I think that even with uh, Michael's admittedly uh, jelly-like uh, features, I don't think that he would have much trouble beating Brando in a 2016 fight as Brando is uh, currently dead. Okay, great. So that's one point for Michael. Um, Michael oh, was ruled God, against um, already. To start um, now, if I would have the point system's great. <laughs> if I would have known, yeah, I don't know what the point system means in this particular game, but we're gonna, you know, we've had points for a long time. We're not gonna give up on them right now. Well, eventually um, the points can be traded at Chuck E. Cheese for various gifts and souvenirs, right? You know, we're not associated with Chuck E. Cheese, right? That's a whole different company. What? 
<laughs> Never mind. All right, number two, bad boy. Number two, Gerard Butler. Now his mm. bad boy credentials. Uh, he has refused to appear in any movies that are commonly considered good. His face is very punchable, but he also, but also the face kind of says, "Hey, I'm bigger than you. Don't try it, Pipsqueak." He sang in a rock band called Speed, which is true. Uh, it's a very uh, bad boy name because uh, bad boys like to go fast. Because Speed Two was a very bad film. So. I think I think I think he's referring to the concept of motion, but I guess I could oh, be wrong. Okay. So the question: You, Michael versus Gerard Butler, who do you think could put more atomic warheads in their mouth? I think that would be me. You know, I, not to go back to genetics again, and <laughs> you know, Gerard Butler. Science and research, Michael. That's what this podcast right. is about. Well, as you know, as anyone who's seen. 300 or the 300 trailer could attest to Gerard Butler does have an impressive set of pipes for yelling and stuff like that but I think uh, just my general once again jelly-like muscular accoutrements would uh, enable me to put the most was it warheads uh, atomic warheads yeah atomic warheads hey, well hold on a second do you mean literal atomic warheads or is that like that kind no, of candy I meant, I meant the candy Okay. 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 That 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 was that was important detail. I think you guys would probably tie for real atomic warhead <laughs> at zero. That's probably true. Um, I think it would be me. I think it would be yeah. me. I, yeah. All right. Well, Peter, as the judge, you got a lot of information to work with to make your decision, <laughs> and I will take none of it into consideration. Okay. <laughs> uh, judging by uh, Gerard Butler's mouth, which I can only assume to be incredibly small because he doesn't open it that much in his movies, uh, yeah. just to get the words out, and then he clamps it closed beneath that the billowy brush of his his disgusting beard, and. I don't know. Uh, I think I just Michael looks like the kind of guy that can that can take down some warheads. It looks All like right. the sort of guy that would that would like people would be like, okay, you can spit him out and be like, no, <laughs> okay, more. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna rule in. I'm gonna rule in Michael's favor. All right, that's two points for Michael. Yes. Winning. How do these points work. I don't know, <laughs> guys. We'll we'll go, I'll cut in an explanation later. Don't. Um, <laughs> no. Uh, number three, bad Cut boy. <laughs> Cut the explanation now, Just, live. You know, Peter, I'll, I'll let you know. Okay, you'll you'll listen back. You'll hear. You'll yeah, I'm, hear I'm some with. Stuff. Um, I'm with great. Aaron on this one. Okay. Some things are just, you know, there's a time and a place. You know, I'm, I'm <laughs> first of all, I'm surprised Mr. Competitive is even, like, questioning the concepts of points. Like, just go with it. <laughs> <laughs> number three, bad boy, Jonathan Frakes. Now, his bad boy credentials. Oh, I was not expecting that. All right. His bad boy credentials. He has a beard. He's, uh-huh. he's a pleasant demeanor, but, you know, deceptively so. Like, is he hiding something? Also, he constantly wonders out loud to us, do UFOs exist? Which is a pretty bad boy thing to do. So, the question, <laughs> the question to you, Michael, do you think that you could beat Jonathan Franks at a clock-stopping contest? Oh. Ooh, this really this separates the men from the boys here. For those of scant few listeners who are unaware uh jonathan frakes of course in his directorial career famously directed the 2002 feature film clock stoppers i've never heard of that this is about whether you can hit a snooze alarm quicker oh (laughs) wait okay oh uh that's got to be me yeah no i can take that definitely i any day of the week yeah no come on all right well peter judges 
Do you want Peter? Uh, do you want to be referred to as not Peter for the duration of this game and just judges? Yeah, okay. I, I, <laughs> I would like you to uh, try to disassociate my personality okay. into as many okay. identities. Oh, yeah, I'll, as you I'll, can I'll, 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 ta- I'll take another take. Judges. <laughs> I think that uh, Michael's onto something here. Uh, Michael looks like a sleepy boy who uh, <laughs> needs to catch another fifteen. So uh, yeah, I'm gonna go with Michael on this one. All right, that's three yes. points for Michael. Uh, as we all know, the points are. That's my pause for an explanation later. It's gonna be be seamless segue, guys. All right, number four, bad boy. Michael's winning three zero. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know who has zero. This is. I expected to do well, but not this well. This is good. Well, thank the judges. Yes. Number four, bad boy. Us. Air Bud. Now his bad boy credentials are. He has exploited poorly written rule books to dominate in multiple sports. Yeah. He had a famous love affair with the chimp from MVP, Most Valuable Primate. Uh, and, you know, to be a real bad boy, you have to die young, and he died at the age of 12. <laughs> God. <laughs> My question for you is, Michael, who do you think, between you and Airbud, could fill out a more accurate income tax return? Is Airbud alive in this question? Sure. When he's filling out the okay, okay, yeah. um, fair question. Alive, no, like, it is fair it, question. like, like, not like early in his life or or late in his life when he was. So he's not a puppy. No, he's like he's like at his mentally sharpest. So like four. Um, hmm. filling out a tax form. Let me ask you this: Is this tax form in English? Uh, no, this is Spanish. Oh, that's good. I speak Spanish. Uh, then me. I don't think Airbud knows Spanish. Well, he was from Uruguay. Judges? Wait. <laughs> I did no research on Airbud, Michael. I have no idea. So here's the- <laughs> he could still be alive. Here's the thing with Airbud is uh Airbud was actually buried in the pet cemetery and interred the soul of a uh, famous nineteenth century Spanish poet. Uh, so I think Oh my god. Airbud No, I I, so I saw that on the news, I forgot. <laughs> The thing that people forget about Airbud, other than the pet cemetery thing, is that it's not so much that Airbud can physically do these tasks and everything, because like a dog can play soccer, obviously. That's Airbud too, I think. Uh, but dogs wouldn't have the motivation to play soccer. That's that's ground bud. That's ground bud. <laughs> okay. Well, because he's on the ground. Air air is more associated with it's flop bud. <laughs> Flop bud. <laughs> no one says. No one says. Wow, that guy got a lot of air when uh, when playing soccer. So <laughs> sorry, sorry, is, judges. Uh, the, yeah, let 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 us judges continue. Um, I speak for all the judges here when I say that uh, Airbud actually he needed the motivation as well, which can only lead me to believe that he had at some point been possessed by a um, a loose soul. Yeah, um, perhaps. From the pet cemetery. Yeah, I'm going to say that Airbud is vastly more qualified than someone that learned Spanish as a second language. For for his tax returns, that kind of went out of the equation in the judge's deliberations. No, I'm it's saying. a fair cop. It's a fair cop. Yeah. <laughs> All right. It's 3-1. I thought you were going to you're going to double judge me and just be like, I'm no. going to give the point to no. someone. No, we'll, we'll save that. That's a good idea. That's a good future game idea where all of a sudden there's a there's a judge twist and it turns out I've been judging the judges the whole time. Uh. Like you're the Supreme Court 
of judges. Like, you give me just enough authority. The Supreme Court of Judges! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's, oh, that metaphor. That, mm. oh. Ah, so good. So Supreme good. Court nice. of Judges. Last one, Michael. And this one, yes. this is the ultimate Hollywood bad boy. When people think, when people think, man, that guy, that guy was a bad boy. They're thinking of this guy, Ronald Reagan. Charles Manson. Oh, wow. Now, his, his bad boy credentials, he sold out all other Hollywood actors in a deal with the yeah. NDAA, uh, committed yeah. war crimes, and is wholly or partially responsible for the rise of the Christian right, deregulation mm-hmm. of our banking system, and the current landscape of no compromise partisan politics. Yeah. Ultimate bad boy. Michael, do you think that you could give a better hug than Reagan? <sighs> wow. You know, this is one where some shame shameful secrets are going to have to come up. You've never you never hugged someone? <laughs> well, I'm not a I'm not a very good hugger. I had I had attachment and affection issues as a as a youngster. I think I think we can assume Reagan did too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, who knows? But the thing is, Ronald Reagan did multiple films with uh I believe a chimpanzee. I think that's right. Yep, no, that's sure. right. And as we all know, um, chimpanzees are notorious man killers. They have ripped off people's faces, genitals, um, things like that. And the only thing that keeps a chimpanzee truly docile is either some sort of treat or snack or, of course, physical affection. And as someone who has never interacted with a simian, whether it be a chimpanzee, orangutan, bonobo, uh, baboon, I have to—I honestly have to say that I think Ronald Reagan, probably due to his experience with chimps, has a more welcoming cross-species affection than even I do within my this, own species. I have to say this: this question went to a weird place. Where now you're talking about who could give? The more more cross species love between you and Reagan, Ju- judges judges you can decide both. Now it's a two part question uh, between between Michael and Reagan. First, uh, who do you think give better hugs? And uh, second, uh, who do you think uh, gives more cross species love? <laughs> it sounds like uh, Michael doesn't have a whole lot of love for chimpanzees, so Reagan's gonna win that one just yeah. right off the bat. The the, the the second bonus question. I don't trust yeah. <laughs> anything that gets to work in the circus and wear a diaper at the same time. It's not fair. <laughs> and anything that checks in, like <laughs> that was an orangutan. But yes, <laughs> I'm gonna say. I just I just want to stop to say that uh, Michael just may have had the best actually uh, ever about Dustin Jenkson. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I just got mansplained on gorillas. Yeah. Way to go. That's what orangutans. Gorilla is not even. Uh, anyways, yeah. that's why we started this podcast so I get mansplained <laughs> about monkeys. But uh, yeah, it's actually a trick question, uh, Michael, because it actually takes two to hug, and when two people hug, there's no right and wrong. And um, yeah, I think that if you and Reagan had a hugging contest, you would both win. Oh. All right. Uh, so I think I think the score was three to one to one. Yes. Um, I think did I Bobo, get a point? I think, or did Reagan get a point? I don't. I think Bobo the chimp <laughs> got a point. So I think, but I still think that Michael had three points. So Michael is the ultimate bad boy. Go win, go win. We ain't 
That was a lot of fun. Do you guys want to start talking about Deliverance? Let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. Some people go into the woods to hold on. Fuck, I'm, I'm, I'm not. That's five seconds right there. Okay, yeah, there you go. There you go. Done. Sorry. Some people go into the woods to. Uh, well, I realized it was a river. Like they're going rafting, and so I wanted to restart. But it's fine. They go into the you woods. You didn't even to... mention the river or rednecks in that description. No, I didn't even mention um, men. Just people. Some people go in the woods. <laughs> The movie has like no women in it, um, and it's it was also four, so it was like some. It's not like there was some undefinable nebulous number. It was one, two, three, four guys, people. There, there was a reason I said let me start over. But all right, we'll fucking know. start over then and no, stop dilly dallying. It's, it's over. It's over. That's five seconds. This has been a minute. Okay. So, so uh, Aaron spent uh, two of those seconds apologizing. For <laughs> uh, all right. So, ninety second breakdown. Uh, four city slickers uh, go out to the woods. One of them uh, fancies himself a real outdoorsman. Uh, Lewis, played by Burt Reynolds, and he kind of takes them on this crazy. Um, a white water canoeing trip to go down this river. Um, it's in a region that's about to be flooded by a damming company. And so it's sort of a, a soon to be dead region. And as they're, uh, they're going down the river, they are accosted by uh, two uh, local rednecks who try to rape two of them, Ned Beatty and John Voigt. Uh, successfully, in Ned Beatty's case, that's where the famous squeal like a pig line happens. And uh, during that altercation, Burt Reynolds, being Burt Reynolds, fires a bolt from a bow and arrow, kills one of the rednecks. The other one runs off. Then uh, the crew has to sort of decide what they're going to do with the body. They bury the body. They decide that they're going to hide the truth. Then in their, their haste after burying the body and escaping, they, uh, so they uh, lose a member of their team in the water who drowns. Burt Reynolds gets completely taken out of commission. Um, they think that uh, the, the rednecks are hunting them. So uh, one of them, uh, John Voigt, decides to go hunt down the, uh, the, the remaining redneck, kills him, lowers him down, and then they notice that they don't think that this is the redneck that got away. This is someone completely different. Uh, they bury their friend. Uh, they bury the body of the, the second redneck. Uh, once they get to the, to, the, to the land, they're treated in the town, the town that's about to die because the the damning. Once they tell their story to the police, they're basically let off off the, the chain for their uh, crimes because the policeman just has nothing to convict them on. It just says, go on home. And the last thing we see is John Voight being haunted by what he did in the woods. 
Yeah, uh, that's basically what I said. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's probably way. But no, that's, that's on a bridge. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, you had some more specifics, but <laughs> just like a couple. <laughs> yeah. So let's uh, before we start getting into some topics, let's just let's talk a little bit about our our history with this movie, if we have a history. Or I know in Michael's case, this was his first time seeing it. So I'm first time. Here's general thoughts. Um, I'll, I'll I'll go pretty quick. Um, I saw this for the first time uh, working my way through um, uh, working my way through the American Film Institute's uh, 100 Thrills list. I think this is number 15 on the list. And uh, so I watched it back in high school. I really liked it. I thought it was excellent. And I and I haven't seen it since then. I really didn't think much about it. And I think uh, a common thread that I want to discuss more later is that I – first of all, I didn't even remember that they got off the river. I thought it kind of ended in an ambiguous way with them still on the river, which kind of shows that like I think this movie has become – a little bit of a punchline because of uh, two very well-known moments in the film, the Ned Beatty rape scene and dueling banjos. I think it's a big disservice to the movie in a whole and one that I I don't think anyone's doing on purpose. I think those are two keystone moments and it's the ones that get talked about in pop culture a lot. Uh, rewatching it again and kind of seeing that, like, you know, it's less of a horror movie about rednecks in the woods but more about, like, the horror of dealing with trauma. I ended up liking this movie even more uh, than I remembered liking it. And uh, the last thing I'll say, uh, which is something that did not occur, I almost saw this in elementary school at a sleepover uh, because my parents, who were very, very conservative, rented it because rented it for us because they're like, "Oh yeah, Deliverance, you'll like this. You guys, you guys will really like this movie." And uh, my dad, I think, had to say to my mom, like whispered something and then she's like oh okay yeah there's a scene that wouldn't be appropriate for you guys <laughs> um, the, the banjo scene so, of course you were not allowed to be yes. exposed to that. yeah <laughs> only guitars in this house but like that was funny for me many years later like i didn't think much of, of it i don't think I, I i don't think in like fifth grade i really like i probably wanted to see back to the future or batman um i didn't want to see whatever dumb movie my parents wanted me to watch the reason i mention it uh, besides it being a mildly amusing uh, anecdote, is because it, it's telling that after I just said, hey, this was the one moment that the rape scene is what stayed in my mind. That is a moment that uh, my my mom almost forgot about completely when when about to show this this movie to 10 year olds. So, wow. Peter, <laughs> Peter, why don't you go? Um, my experience with this movie at first, you said it's uh, it's gained a sort of reputation as a punchline. Uh, I think that this movie now is mostly known as a uh, I love the 70s uh, punchline. There's this weird thing that happens with the I love the, eight, the 80s and 70s shows where it just like flattened pop culture to all this sort of like awesome gloop. And so... I just thought it was like, oh, it's this, this great, like, killer redneck movie with this weird scene where they're terrorizing this guy. So, yeah, I, I was like, all right, yeah, this movie's going to be awesome. It's going to be like this kick-ass, you know, getting revenge on rednecks movie. And then you – I saw it when I was like 13 or 14, which was the exact perfectly wrong age to see it because uh, I was old enough to – I guess I was old enough to handle the content. But, like, at 13 and 14, I what I wanted really – was something more actiony and exploitationy um, at the time when I, I I just remember the the rape scene. I remember the banjo scene, and I didn't really like it when I was thirteen. And upon revisiting it, I, I loved it. And it's it's weird because it reminds me now. I, I realize now that it's not some grim, grimy exploitation movie like it was. It was even accused of it being at the time. To me, it reads more as like a uh, 
uh, Hitchcockian thriller about a group of very diverse people trying to deal with a very um, understandable but morbid thing, morbid concepts. Like we have to get rid of this body and uh, did I kill the right person? Like that all feels very Hitchcockian to me and more, more elevated than it does a uh, grim and gritty strangling a redneck in the mud kind of movie. Um, yeah, it's yeah. definitely, it's definitely more internal horror than external horror um, as I remembered it. But yeah, that's, that's, that was my point is basically, is, yeah, it's, it's, it's remembered very falsely. I think yeah. by some people. Um, yeah. Michael, you want to tell us a bit about your, your history with the movie? Yeah. Yeah. Um, or, or the area. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, um, as, as I, I brought up earlier on the show, uh, I am from Kentucky near Appalachia. Um, my mom's from Georgia where the, you know, the film set and stuff. I went to Transylvania university and actually one of the first classes that I, uh, ever took, at Transylvania, it was a class on confronting Appalachian stereotypes. Deliverance, honestly, was in maybe 75% of the readings we did in that class. We mentioned it, it seems like every other class. So this is a, this is a film. I, I, I don't even, I don't even mean this as a joke. I'm surprised it's not higher. Like, that, <laughs> yeah, I just because like this is the archetypal. Is the yeah, that, right. Yeah. And so this is a film where I had read about it before I'd ever actually seen it. And I just saw it a few hours ago. And a lot of what the film was alleged to be about, I was expecting. But, of course, the actual experience of watching it is always going to be very different. Um, I think one of the things that did surprised me was the idea and I don't remember what you mentioned it but that it was a film that was almost as much about the horrors of living with what you're doing as it is about you know surviving the elements surviving the craziest redneck with the shotgun you know I thought it was I thought it was really good um, I enjoyed it a lot it's, it's part of one of those it's one of those types of movies that falls into this kind of subgenre that I I like never seek out, but when I watch it, I find I tend to like it a lot. Which is normal folks on a hellish journey in some kind of plausible but horrific circumstance. I I, I thought it was a really excellently made film. Um, I think the, the craft on display was fantastic. I think that John Boardman's direction was that kind of quiet, gritty, but not um, reveling too much in grittiness way that I thought was really strong. And, and uh, I was surprised how affected I was by sort of the last act of the film where the characters kind of try and move on from, you know, what's happened to them after they've survived the external threats, you know, because I knew that the, the, going through the rapids and you know getting held at knife point and all that stuff was going to be intense but i thought found the rest of it just as intense yeah it almost feels like and you know this this may this may be a such an obvious thing that anyone listening would be like yeah of course that's what the book was about and that's what this was about but like seeing it again as a much older person besides the idea of this is like this is about you know internal horror and dealing with trauma and that's really the focal point of the movie. It also was like, oh, this is also, if not a Vietnam War metaphor, but 
which it probably is if 1972 I'm sure there are at least shades of that something of a coming home from war hmm. metaphor like even the whole last 15 minutes when they're like struggling to like first just the immense relief that they're like eating a meal with other people away from their horrific endeavor to the flashbacks of uh, where the trauma occurred to like holding his John Voight holding his wife and like not knowing like are we going to get through this this has changed me and changed her too like because that's what war does if you're in a relationship it, it, it doesn't just it doesn't just affect your life it affects the life of your family as well anytime anyone go through that kind of trauma so it almost felt to be on the nose and hitting me over the head with it this time to the point that i'm like amazed that that never comes up or I that's never, not it never that's not part of the me. discourse yeah no that didn't occur to me until yeah. you just said it right now and that's weird because i you know i think i think predators about the vietnam war so you know like uh i yeah no that, that hadn't occurred to me I, I was seeing it more as sort of uh i was reading it more as sort of like a parable about the old south and the new south and not quite pulpy, but sort of pulpy take on the transition that was occurring in this area and the the clash of sort of cultures and subcultures and stuff like that. So I, the Vietnam War was actually very far from my mind. So you mentioned, but I liked that reading a lot. Yeah, and I think that it's uh, it's a movie that I mean, obviously, tons of action thrillers at the time and for the next you know twenty years would have shades of Vietnam. Um, aliens is one that people point to all the time. Um, but the for Santa me, Claus for me, <laughs> yes, the Santa Claus. W- w- once you get, once you sign up, it's hard to get out. <laughs> <laughs> it struck me as something that could be the, the messages in it could be extrapolated to be about. I think any war where you get in over your head. Uh, yeah, clearly in 1972, it's about it's about Vietnam, but it, it's very telling in the way that it has sort of uh, us versus them dynamics. That's what drives the whole second killing that the team commits is this sort of, well, they're clearly out there and they're clearly hunting us, which is, you know, what the audience expects at this point because they've seen so many thrillers about, you know, bucktooth rednecks coming out of the woodwork to murder them. And this movie's already shown us a couple of those bucktooth rednecks. So why wouldn't they, you know, just uh, swarm uh, risking life and limb to get revenge on these people um, instead of just being these two, uh, these two rednecks just being, you know, bad actors within a population that just wants to be left alone. Um, For a second, I thought you were dissing the actors like, like Bill, like Bill, (laughs) Bill McKinney. And I was like, Hey, what the heck? (laughs) No, I guess that's a bad choice of words. Uh, two bad apples. There we go. Is that, uh, well, but those actors uh, are apples, though, so you shouldn't call them bad. <laughs> but again, that that's actually kind of telling because I, I, I think this movie and, and there's the, the thing I want to talk about next speaks to it, too. I think we almost have like cultural amnesia about this movie. And I don't think I'm the only one because I remembered almost vividly that um, – the 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 dueling banjo kid and like that family which at the end is like they're fine which which underlines your point peter that yeah this was not a referendum on the people that live in the area but there was just two assholes yeah well and even the the two the two uh griner brothers they they drove the car right to ainsley or yeah 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 they were waiting for i remembered them being part of the plan, though, like I remembered them being part of the bad guys, which, oh, wow. which is like that is what I remembered 15 years later. And I don't know if that's because at some point, again, it was a long time ago. 
that like other southern horror movies that I've watched a lot of in in the time have like blended together and there probably was some movie where um the nice people or there's probably a ton of movies where the nice people at the beginning of the movie turn out to be uh turn out to be working with or the villains but i think that is an example of something that 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 is very common in this movie which is people fucking don't remember it you know michael it was interesting that you posted like what would you what would you consider the genre of this movie in the in the dissolve group i think that's a good question but i'll honestly say like after rewatching it anyone who hasn't seen it in the last couple of years i would probably discount their opinions and memory of the movie only because not not just because that's my experience and i think a lot of ex- people's experience with this movie this feels like a movie where the cultural conversation dominates the movie in a way that i can't really yeah compare anything to like is there any other movie that is primarily known for a rape scene and like i guess you could say the, the accused, accused yeah but it's primarily known as for a rape scene as a joke like, how many deliverance jokes are there? Like, no one – like, if you're talking about it's like the accused, you're probably referencing the most famous scene from that movie. But you're probably not using it in a humorous way unless right. you're a fucking psychopath. When's the last time anyone said deliverance as a verb and meant it serious? And I'm not I'm not trying to accuse anyone. I just think it's fascinating. This movie is known for one scene – a horrific act being committed on a person, and that scene is primarily used as a joke. That's no, that's, that's a good point. That's true. I think that the I think that generally speaks to how people uh, think of prison rape as well, where it's like co- comedic yeah. almost. It's any like yeah, male on yeah. male rape is is so sort of un un misunderstood, like so uncomprehended in this society that it's yeah it people view it as some sort of joke when it's you know of course not yeah and the di- and the dialogue too like squeal like a pig and uh and you got a pretty mouth like when's the last time those have been used as like an example of like a harrowing thing someone says to someone before they commit like a despicable act just something that people say casually while you're playing basketball or something as a way of like insulting someone like it's it's kind of crazy how that must be why i don't play movie- basketball uh, yeah, that was a terrible example. I, I, was I can't remember. Say, I, don't, I, was... I don't remember. It's been a while since I played basketball with anyone, but I don't remember being uh, accosted with deliverance lines while I was doing it. Like, hey, you want to Co- shoot some hoops and uh, maybe I'll uh, throw some rape threats at you? Mm-hmm. You got a real pretty mouth. Well, okay. I, I am playing with the wrong guys <laughs> at the you. YMCA. Yeah, uh, right. Yeah. Out of um, context, but... though, if somebody told me I had a pretty mouth, I'd probably take it as a compliment. That's yeah, it's true. Uh, but it's, it is weird how this movie's like edges it's it's edges and its sharp edges and its corners haven't just been sanded down but they've been like erased by the sands of time <laughs> well i i think that sort of you know you mentioned that the two big sort of famous scenes in the movie are the dueling banjo scene and the squeal like a pig scene and what i think the reason why those stick out in people's memories is that while the movie is very strong and very well made and it's very thrilling and suspenseful and everything like that, you have seen movies about people on a journey through the wilderness trying to survive. You have seen movies about people being preyed on by murderous, you know, hillbillies. You have seen movies about group dynamics in distress when people undergo some kind of, you know, natural disaster. But those two scenes... I mean, just the the male rape in any kind of film is 
noteworthy because of how rare it is. Then the dueling banjo scene is, I guess there's well, there's a lot to get into the two there, but I think that the the reason why those are the film is mostly remembered for those two is you might see another film about guys sort of trying to survive while going down some dangerous path, but this particular execution of it has these details which are a little odd or might stick out to people. I think it also is a little bit of like how people deal with watching something that's kind of horrific and like not knowing how to process it. But it is interesting that, you know, these lines like squeal like a pig and stuff like that have become part of like the humorous cultural conversation. But like watching it again, it is amazing like how stark and muddy and just there's absolutely no humor in the scene itself there's almost no humor in the whole film yeah 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 it's so the 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 rape scene is so textural and tactile and it's disgusting yeah you can hear you can hear the 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 leaves rustling in the mud and you can you can almost hear like the elastic snap of Ned's underwear like it's it the the little details that John Borman, who I'm surprised we haven't done a John Borman movie yet. We're going to have to do a hell of a lot of them. Uh, the details. I mean, we, we've only done 18 includes. movies, Peter. But yeah, yeah but he's but but John Borman's responsible for 25 percent of all movies. So yeah, we should have at least you know <laughs> like, like four Excel or five by now. Does, like yes, so, so John Borman it includes such. Um, viciously textural details in in the rape scene and the the rapid scene where um the whole movie has a sort of of natural feel to it in a way that i don't necessarily feel a lot of movies have i'm not surprised that the tourism in this area like jumped to the point that the county that this movie was shot in to this day tourism is its biggest industry like it, it speaks to how good John Borman was at showing the natural beauty of everything that a movie that still is prime as we talked about primarily known for male rape scene like people are like yeah but I still want to visit it was gorgeous (laughs) (laughs) well it's sort of maybe out with the (laughs) bathwater let's let's not throw out Ned Beatty with the (laughs) bathwater as far as films that are sort of comparable in kind of style or tone the two there were a couple I kept on thinking about one of the things I kept thinking about was um it's not quite the same, but it's a similar feel to sort of Sam Peckinpah's films that he was making around this mm-hmm. time. And that really – that stuck out to me in the scene where um, Burt Reynolds kills the fish and it's on camera. Like you can see the arrow go into the fish and hook it and everything. And uh, it's clearly not faked. Like that's clearly an arrow going to the fish. And I was thinking about how the 70s was a, a great age for animal cruelty on film. <laughs> exactly. And, and uh, so much so that the uh, the rules for how we could treat animals were changed by this era. So way to go, 70s. <laughs> but and the, but well, the, other, the other comparison I was going to make was a couple times, you know, as I was watching it, I thought about last year's The Revenant uh, mm-hmm. as being a film that when you see this – you kind of see what sort of thing they were going for with that film for its for all its strengths and weaknesses. And this is also one of those films where you can tell that a lot of people almost died during the making of this film. Like a lot of a lot of famous people were not well insured on this film because no one would have done that. Um, yeah, all uh, those Canusians are real. Oh, and you can tell just from the yeah. way it's filmed. I mean, you can just tell that, like, yeah, that's Ned Beatty paddling that canoe, and he's fucking terrified. Yeah, yeah they even make a joke about it earlier in the movie. Um, Lewis says, uh, I, 
never had insurance. Don't believe in it. There, there's no risk in, in insurance. It's like the, the movie is winking at the yeah. fact that uh, it is a uh, walking lawsuit waiting to happen. Yeah, well, the sev- so, so the many. 70s was a golden age of animal cruelty and actor cruelty as well so that's but 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 they haven't changed the laws to ensure that you know no ronnie coxes are harmed during the making of this film so i think it's easy to forget that ronnie cox is in this movie i think that's because he's uh, great in it by the way yeah he's great but you forget that he's he's playing uh real life talk show host david letterman i had no idea that's incredible yeah so yeah his character's name like people forget it was david letterman and he was playing talk <laughs> show host David. The, you know that was very ahead of its time because, of course, seventy two. Not a whole lot of people knew, but Ronnie Cox was like, "No, go go with me on this one." Borman was a little; he was reluctant. He was like, "I don't know about this, mate." And you know, that's it. Ronnie Cox though. He's prescient. He's, very I, Borman's Australian. Ah, uh, you know, Australia, Britain. They're okay. both outside. Mm-hmm. Hold on, they're both outside. <laughs> yeah, like that restaurant okay. outside Steakhouse. Oh, okay. Gotcha. <laughs> that that was one of the best saves I've ever heard. <laughs> um, yeah, but yeah. So the, jumping back to the Revenant thing, yeah, Revenant is a movie that I liked more than a lot of people. I liked it too. Yeah, I yeah, I, I did I, too. I, I like, I like the movie. quite a bit um, actually. Not as much as this, and not as much as um, Jeremiah Johnson, but. Uh, yeah, they're pulling from a similar sort of dynamic, and it's interesting to see in 2015 how people react to the uh, method actory thing coming from an established actor and established director as opposed to a $2 million movie that John Borman was throwing together with yep. um, half unknown actors yep. and a lot of locals and, um, yeah, people doing their own stunts. Like, the thought that it's interesting that, like, once you become established – uh, and you start talking like you start like rubbing up about like oh yeah we did this we did this legit we really went out in the woods and did this people are like oh go fuck yourself but like when John Voight is just casually talking about the movie twenty years later and he's like yeah that was a rough shoot everyone's like you're so cool yeah no I, I was just gonna bring I was <laughs> I was just gonna bring that up like like I think that there's this kind of you know there's this thing and I'm not saying it's good or bad but the sort of um, mythologizing of the kind of the idea of the manly director, the peck and paw, the bore men, the, <laughs> the yeah. ultimate bad boy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The William Friedkin. He had a harness that almost broke Linda Blair's neck. Like, <laughs> you know, like that kind of thing that 30 years <laughs> after almost killed a kid. Yeah. Right. 30, 40 years after those films are made, it sounds all cool. And, and you're like, Oh man, that's when, the, that's when fucking men made movies, man. Coppola was in fucking, Manila cooperating with like fucking Ferdinand Marcos and slaughtering water buffaloes and and <laughs> but when it's but when you're living through it and you're getting the press releases and the news wires and stuff and you read about it on Twitter it takes the the mythology out of it so it's a bit of a I think it's a bit of a double standard that both treats the the 70s directors with a little too much um a little too much praise and glory and is also maybe a little ungenerous to the to the 2010s directors who yeah, and, and people are only mythologizing it because it worked out. Yeah, like, right. And Like, no one's like, oh, man, well, men were men on the set of the Twilight Zone movie. <laughs> Holy <laughs> shit. Yeah, no, not quite. Like, like, oh, like man, once, the fucking once crow. Like, man, that yeah. was the movie right there. To be on the set of the crow. Yeah, John, uh. John Landis didn't care about safety harnesses. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it's such a, once, such a and, fine and, line and, between Sam Peckinpah and John Landis. 
Well, but yeah, yeah, both known for their manliness. Oh, <laughs> but but Jesus it is it is true. Like we were thought, like because the stories are like this all worked out. But like right. there's that's there's real fear in his eyes. Yeah, yeah. Like there's yeah. there's a turn where those stories are like, man, can't believe we had to execute Francis Ford Coppola. <laughs> like, he, but he deserved it. Like yeah, right. It's also an issue of youth because uh, like. This movie's amazing, but, like, Burt Reynolds broke his coccyx on this movie, and the scenes where he's lying in the, the boat, like, <laughs> like he's actually, like, rolling around in pain because it's an incredibly painful thing to do, an incredibly painful stunt to do when you're um, suffering from a broken back. The movie was more or less shot chronologically yeah um too um and you know what actually in case in case ronnie cox died before they <laughs> got a chance to film the rest of it yeah. before they actually killed him the other thing i want to jump back to though um i'm kind of surprised you didn't mention as long as we're kind of talking about speaking of uh dangerous irresponsible directors in <laughs> i'm kind of surprised you didn't mention uh Werner herzog because this this reminded me a lot of um of Aguirre, the Wrath of God, not just because it features a water uh, way that people are trying to transfer. Oh yeah, water. That's the one sort of yeah. The two movies that feature water. Yeah, the two movies. No, the but no, not elements water. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. Um, not just because that, but but because I feel like it almost shows like two sides of obsession, where like Aguirre's character is kind of big and obsessed, and you know that was that was kind of Klaus Kinski's whole thing was that you know he was over the top and he just is like an animal, like salivating at and at trying to reach his goals. And I feel like Burt Reynolds kind of plays the the inverse of that where he still has the same like crazy eyes and obsession but it's like it's a very laid back obsession but like equally dangerous to the people that follow him down those paths well i was gonna say you know when i when i started this i you know i don't think i've seen a film where burt reynolds has the lead role other than you know, I don't think I, I, I honestly think this is the first film I've seen where Burt Reynolds is the lead role. Like, you know, it's interesting how he's positioned as sort of the the leading man of sorts at the beginning of the film, I think, um, along with John Voight. And then he gets sidelined halfway through because, you know, even if you're super cool with your fucking cutoffs and you know, like fucking sleeveless whatevers and anyways it's, it's sleeveless wetsuit <laughs> yeah so yeah that's what i was trying to think of yeah sleeveless wetsuit uh if you get if you hit your leg on a fucking rock while you're going down the rapids you're going to be out of commission so i thought that was a good choice um yeah the burt reynolds he called this his favorite movie that he yeah. ever did um he also hated boogie nights so yeah. uh take that for whatever you but i mean ebert cop and a half is ebert approved so maybe maybe ebert reynolds hated take this, another ebert hated this movie which, uh, um, I, I feel I, like hating is a is a strong term for getting it, two and a half out of four stars. He called it like exploit. I, well, I, I didn't see the star rating. I just read the review. It looked he called it like exploitational, and he was talking about it with, in pretty negative terms. I think um, e- Ebert uh, was a, was a, putting on some strange reviews at the time. <laughs> <laughs> he was putting on the Ritz. Um, but yeah, the, the, Burt Reynolds in this without the the trademark mustache and sort of humbling himself. As it basically handing over the mantle of the action star to somebody and then somebody trying to take up that mantle and arguably failing horribly. Did John Voight, he, I, I identified with John Voight in a, a lot of this movie. Um, 
like right from the beginning his sort of temperament and the way that he he sort of reacts to the group and his sort of like mild-manneredness but his like openness to stuff uh was was really uh i really identify with it but the sort of anxiety thrumming with him like because he's he's bringing two friends along with that aren't friends with Lewis, with Burt Reynolds. He's bringing them along with for these camping trips. And he's kind of enjoying this, like letting this, this big bulky alpha male take the lead. Um, and then when he actually has to take the lead, he morally stumbles. But yeah, but my point is that these action, these alpha male action stars very rarely give up their sense of powerment, even in these action fantasies. That was a choice that uh, improved the movie dramatically to have to like have this uh these power dynamics disrupted and thrown up in the air yeah and and i think that that john voight was more than capable of picking up the the slack i mean it, you know I, I i really i don't i don't have enough nice things to say about john voight in this film um i think it was an excellent lead performance sort of the perfect kind of lead performance for this kind of film where he doesn't have to there's not a lot that is said so he has to communicate it through his body language through his face through his expressions being able to serve as sort of an audience you know like like you mentioned peter it's sort of an audience identification character i, I mean i think that that's really i think it was just tremendous work by void and um i think you can see why you know for a while he was really sort of considered one of the great kind of American actors of his generation. Yeah, and then he found Breitbart.com. <laughs> <laughs> he has so much vulnerability in this. He's, he's he, yeah, yes. incredible. He's great. Yeah, so the last big thing that I want to talk about in relation to this movie was kind of like the, the centerpiece of why this is, I think, a horror movie. Uh, even though it's a much different kind of horror movie, which is um, the violent killing that occurs to stop... Um, more people from getting raped. In most horror movies, the horror ends once you kill someone. That's when you celebrate. The horror is an external force. It's coming at you. You kill that force, and that's how the horror ends. There's no consequences to consider. Like, that's where the terror lies. And and here, the horror... I mean, there is the horror of the imp- immediate danger of the rednecks and any harm or violence that they could cause... But that's really where the horror begins and where their party starts to fall apart and uh, people start dying and then they kind of, you know, kind of go through this trauma. I kind of forgot how long uh, the scenes were debating and how, also how, like, gruesome the in a, in a very sloppy, real way the the scenes of them shooting the arrows and pulling oh God, the arrows yeah. out and with him in the frame. Borman has a quote that I want to I want to mention here. Because I think it speaks to something that a lot of us have probably talked about and definitely has been a discussion point on on websites and stuff about how, like, violence is so accepted in a PG-13 rating where it should almost be flipped. Like, if you show the consequences of violence, like, that is at least – you're walking away clean. Little did I know Borman about this movie said back in 1972, uh, the reason that he fought with the MPAA and wanted to keep all of the kind of little gruesome moments is because he thought that cutting away, the quote is cutting away from violence is dishonest. And I wanted the men and the audience to see the consequences of their actions, which I think is also like the perfect summation of the movie as a whole. Yeah, you can't just pull a ripcord and and get yourself out of there. Even if you get like, even if you get off the river, it doesn't mean you got off the river. 
Uh, these people are haunted by what they've done while it's happening, after it happens. It, it, the, the, my favorite scene is they're all standing around the body. This is why I thought of it a Hitchcockian thriller. They're all standing around the body trying to decide what the hell to do with it. And they're arguing very pragmatically. No one is being stupid, I don't think. Drew is arguing both for morality and for common sense, but he's arguing for a common sense that, you know, maybe doesn't make sense for out in these woods. Um, I guess Lewis is arguing they're lawless woods, and this the only law is don't get caught. Um, Drew is just, like, so upset by this killing, and he's like, I, did we have to do this? Like, I don't think we had to do this. I don't want to be a part of this. And Lewis is like, I, I didn't do it. We did it. <laughs> and there's a there's there's a, a an immediate conversation about the culpability and the uh, the cost of, of killing that's talked both pragmatically and morally. And uh, once I started watching this movie, I was like, oh, crap, this was probably a disrespectful pick to pick for um, Redneck Horror Month. Because A, it might not be a horror movie, and B, you know, do I, does I call this movie that has a lot of sympathy for uh, rural people, the region, do I call the, a movie like this uh, Redneck Horror um, for a movie that has, yeah, like I said, so much sympathy for them? Now, I'm glad that we did it because I think it, it wisely balances out the month. It's giving us true moral consequences and true pragmatic consequences for violence. I think that's why this movie's really fucking bad for 16-year-olds to watch in that – Oh, yeah. Because when you're 16 – You just want to drive and you don't want to see these people in canoes. I mean, come on. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, you just want to be driving down Main Street, picking up ladies. Uh-huh. Uh, no. Honeys no, uh, is the no. word you're looking for. Yep. Uh, well, you, you would know. You're the bad boy. Yes. Um <laughs> The, uh, no, like, I didn't remember that there was, like, a 10-minute conversation about the morality of the killing and, like, what consequences they would face. And I probably blacked it out at 16 because you're kind of raising movies like, well, yeah, he was, they were being raped. Of course you kill this guy. Like, I don't think you have the, I mean, maybe some people do, but I don't think you have the emotional maturity to recognize the nuance and the problem with the situation when you're probably raised on more movies that's like bad guy does bad thing you kill it right and yeah, that's you stop the threat you're yeah you're exactly right um and i was just as i was watching i was just surprised at how long the scene went on of them debating it like you like th that is a conversation that sometimes comes up in this kind of movie of like oh do we, do we bury the body do we you know what it goes on people are outlining their cases they're they're laying out what they think is the right choice here and that it doesn't just happen once it happens sort of multiple times and and just on a visual level the scene where they debate what to do with the guy's body is shot so brilliantly by Borman with the camera focused on the group never cutting or shifting around very much um, but sh showing the group all four of them discussing it. You can see the spatial dynamics between them. And you can see, almost practically at the center of the frame, the body of the dead mountain man resting on the branch of this tree, an arrow in his back. And it's this great visual representation of the weight that this act is is going to be having. That this is not just something that's in the side of the frame. This is not something that's outside the frame. This is something that's right there at the center of what this movie is and what this movie is about. 
not to you overuse the term one perfect shot, but but that that scene is just framed amazingly and the implications for everything they're talking about. And they're not just talking about, it, like you said, in the normal horror movie way, which is how do we not get caught? It's look what we've done and how do we move forward short term? And how do we move forward long term? You know, there's there's so much more subtext and nuance and like thought provoking moments in this movie that like I really haven't seen in that many, you know, whatever you want to call horror action. Like this movie slows down to take its time to realize what's just happened. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you mind if I sort of uh, share a real world example of this? I've never murdered anybody, but uh, something that. Why am I on this show then? Um, I have a strict, I only do podcasts with people who have committed murder. How else do you know that they're legit? Yeah, thro- throwing some shade on Joseph J. Finn. <laughs> oh, Are whoops. Gonna... Uh, I mean, uh, my lawyers have advised me. Cut this. Yeah. Yeah. This is a thing that happens in the city because I'm uh, a driver and a bicyclist and a runner and I sort of... Um, and I can lift deal, a lot. I deal with all all angles of the the uh, the pedestrian versus non pedestrian issue. And uh, sometimes when you're driving through a neighborhood, let's say Wicker Park in Chicago, there is a drunk cyclist who are uh, driving really erratically and will take stupid risks just because they're drunk and not paying attention. And I, I had this conversation with somebody where I'm like, it makes me mad. Not so much just because I'm going to kill them with my car. Like obviously that would. I don't want to murder anybody. I know as a human being with a conscience that even if it is 100% their fault and like a pragmatic level, I may never get over killing <laughs> this person. Right. Um, in a, in a, a, you know, this car, a car accident or whatever. I can, I, I would never like on a, both a human moral level where it's like if you're deal- if you live in a society you should care about other people's lives and i do and also for selfish moral reasons uh i could have i would have a hard time living with myself uh even if i knew practically for all intents and purposes that the life that i took i wasn't responsible for or you know i, I could be morally justified in doing so because i don't really think about murdering people that much <laughs> I think you do more when you're like 13, 14, uh, and you're like, not necessarily people that you know, but like, just like, yeah, I could get away with killing a burglar. I could totally do it. There's a sort of machismo to thinking right. that like you can morally swallow yep. it. Yep. Down. That's what, that's what 13 year olds and, uh, all Republicans think. Yeah. You can, that you can just, yeah, exactly. That is, that is kind of true that the, uh, the, 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 the gun, uh, the gun nut kind of fallacy is that someone thinks that they can not only, uh, shoot somebody super yeah. easily, but move on on top of that i think there's another part that i think um sounds almost cold to consider but there's also like there is another component to besides like the 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 morality and like how you live with yourself and stuff like that but i think there is a and i don't think it's necessarily callous to consider the logistics because the idea of like I'm going to have to go through a trial and investigation and things could go wrong like even if you're able to move past it Morally and psychologically, psychologically yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it's going to fuck up your lives in ways that, like, you were just trying to get to work that day, and now yep. you're the guy that killed someone, and you're in the paper. Even even if you're, yeah, right. Even if you're entirely justified, yep. and so, it's yeah, and and I right. I think that is 
a worth I think that's a normal consideration too and also again speaking to kind of how deep this movie goes into it also something else they consider in this movie about not just how do you live with yourself but how you know there's going to be a trial and look where we are and do you think that we're going to win that trial and you know, even though it's Burt Reynolds that's talking about that stuff, like part part of the advantage of, of taking time, slowing down and kind of having a 10 minute scene discussing what I think most people would consider justifiable homicide uh, based on oh, the circumstances. Yeah, yeah, but, but yeah the, self-defense. Like it's not one of those things where any audience member probably would go, well, I don't think they should have done that. Like there was immediate risk. They did it and they still – on something that almost anyone would go, these people are not guilty of murder. They still are are considering the logistics, the morality, everything else. And I think that's a pretty bold choice for movies that, especially action or horror movie, what's the right word, for ease of digestion by the audience, like those are not the things that that they want to bring up because it's a lot it's a lot to deal with conceptually. I, I I totally I totally agree with that. That that it's something that is nice because it gets you on our protagonist's side immediately. So then, as the movie progresses with the sort of us versus them attitude that they they don, it allows you to be just as shocked as they are by what they're they're willing to do. Yeah, and the other the other horror component I think that really comes into this movie is um, the horror of just wanting the vacation to be over. Like we've all, we've all, am I right, fellas? Yeah, I think we've all been there. Like you scheduled it one too many days. You're with your friends. Your canoes are broken. Mm-hmm. Someone's dead. Yep. Just want to go home. Watch my shows. Yeah. Yep. On DVR. I, I, I've noticed. Just want to watch my programs. <laughs> I've noticed that every camping trip I've ever been on is uh, one day too long. Yeah. Uh, I'm going camping this weekend, actually. So this is a uh, uh, interesting timing. Not going on a canoeing trip. But, uh, I mean, there's still a chance I'll get murdered. Don't worry. So, I think I think we've talked a lot about, like, the general moments. Is there any, is there any specific scenes that you guys want to talk about? Any any specific moments that we haven't got to on broader broader themes? Um, there, there is something that I want to address, which is um, I, I want to commend – well, the author – the author – it's – for those who are unaware, Deliverance is based on a novel, which I have not read. Um by James Dickey, who wrote the screenplay to the film as well, who was from Georgia, and he was uh, actually the poet laureate of the United States um, in the 1960s. He actually has a, a small but um, substantial role towards the end of the film as the sheriff, who basically tells John Boyd and Ned Beatty, you know, get the hell out of my town and don't come back. And I thought he did a very nice job for a non-actor, especially. I yeah. think he did a very nice job oh, as yeah. uh, pre- conveying a sense of authority and um, intimidation without being overt. You know, he wasn't the stereotypical, like, small town chef. Well, well, what do we have here? Couple city boys lost their way. It wasn't like that, you know. <laughs> that fe- that was so realistic. It feels like that was your job at one point. <laughs> not not to be a sheriff, but just to tell city boys that they've lost their way. Yeah, in, in a way, that's yeah. Da- no, that's not that. I mean, it's just it comes natural. <laughs> yeah, Michael actually, that was what he was paid to do in back in Kentucky, uh, and then mm-hmm. uh, that market dried up once uh, MapQuest. Uh, yeah, <laughs> we so everyone, no one was lost anymore. It yeah, was like, real fucking. Well, I would love. Well, oh no, we know where we're going. Thanks. 
Yeah. I would love if like yeah. Kentucky replaced uh, Walmart greeters with that instead of saying hello, just everyone that comes in, just well, well, well. <laughs> Looks like a couple of city boys lost their way. Welcome to yeah, Walmart. No, that's, that is a brilliant business model, and I think you should go on Shark Tank um, <laughs> with that. Maybe <laughs> Gator <laughs> Tank. Just like Walmart, but with worse prices and they're mean to you. Yeah, how do you mm-hmm. feel if people uh, evoke deliverance when you walk into a department store? Would you be interested <laughs> in investing in that? <laughs> um, You're going to get some deliverance from high prices. <laughs> e- even though I'm upset that deliverance has been reduced to its rape scene, I'm not I'm not uh, above profiting from it. Yeah. <laughs> You'll squeal like a pig when you see how low we're selling these. Yeah, you don't You got a pretty a, mouth yeah. for some of our toothpaste deals. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, your piggy bank won't squeal when you come around to uh, Aaron. Well, now, dis- now, dis- now that's too far, Peter. That's you crossed far. the line. No. Uh, Burt Reynolds might have broken his leg, but you're gonna break a leg at our annual talent. Now, one too far. Um. Yeah, I I, I agree that the. Uh, I don't know the, what you're agreeing to. What were we talking about? <laughs> so, they agree that the author turned sheriff. What's his name? Uh, Dicky. Yeah, James Dickey. James Dickey. He's really, really good in the role. It's a, it's a small role. Apparently, he was kind of a dickhead on the, on the set. He punched, uh, got in a fist fight with uh, John Borman, and then eventually they made. <laughs> he up. was like, "I'm the poet laureate. You can't <laughs> come on. I call the shots around here. I call my left fist the poet, and my right <laughs> fist the laureate." <laughs> oh. Oh god, like I can't like and then John Borman and him apparently made up, which I think is just something that uh drunk action movie people did in the 70s. Like I'm pretty sure Lee Marvin punched everybody he worked with bloody and then eventually they became friends though. Yeah, he's a pretty good guy. So the only scene the only scene that I really wanted to discuss uh we, and we don't need to do a big discussion on it, but um, just something I kind of thought was like brilliant way to establish that things have gone wrong in a way that I never noticed the first time. So that first canoe scene, like it's about like a 10, 15 minute scene and they're navigating the rapids and they're kind of like they're calling out and they're communicating and like, it, you know, it's pretty intricate. It's great because it kind of establishes uh, the river and how pretty everything is. And, of course, uh, you know, that's that's normal tone establishment before they upend it when things start going wrong. But the other thing it really subtly does that it it by showing how they're navigating the rapids when things go wrong and they start canoeing again. And they're not talking and they're panicking and they're not having that same back and forth communication and they're not, you know, they're just kind of doing their own paddle to get away as fast. It's a great way of like establishing that like the communication has broken down in the group, the teamwork's broken down in the group and establishing a heightened sense of now what they're doing is dangerous, even though the rapids themselves haven't gotten more severe. They're definitely not using proper teamwork. Um, they're going to get smoked by the purple parrots in the next round. Um, they, <laughs> they, uh, that's right. No, they, that, they, that they hits are, me right are, in the place. Yeah, they are. They are work friends, which is not surprising because like this is exactly what happens when you like <laughs> take take people that sit in an office all day and put them in a different environment. They're like, oh, shit, one of them's crazy. Um, <laughs> that guy wasn't hoarding staplers just for fun um, <laughs> and, you, and you get a taste of that even when you go out and drink with co-workers you're like you're like wait a minute I didn't why do you have a snake resist. yeah 
Or racist. That's a twist. Yeah. (laughs) I stopped the clock like Jonathan Frakes. (laughs) Because I want to sleep a little more. Just just a little bit. I will bend space and time to nap more. (laughs) What about you, Peter? Do you have any any, uh, scenes we didn't really touch on that you wanted to call out? Um, you know, I think that we, we kind of, uh, I think we kind of tracked the movie pretty well. I think that the, the idea that the movie constantly keeps you on your toes after, basically as soon as they got on the, the river, um, is pretty terrific. We didn't really discuss the score and how it's, uh, plays off of itself. It's basically like a, a, a theme yeah, we should probably take five minutes and discuss the other thing that people know this movie. Yeah, this it, well, yeah. it's basically just like a really great scene where there's a banjo of a local kid. Which um, Michael, before we before we close this up, you should definitely uh, take the lead on talking about the sort of stereotypes and stuff in this movie. Oh yeah, yeah. We'll kind of maybe we'll, maybe we'll wrap on that and then we'll we'll close the show. Oh yeah, but, I can um, I can talk about that. But uh, there's a there's a dueling dueling banjo scene uh, with a local child and. Uh, a member of our crew drew and it's terrific it's really really awesome and it's a sort of weird moment that right before the shit all hits the fan where it's almost like john borman's like music brings everybody together and it's like but rape brings everybody apart <laughs> like the, the, there's this it was a bold ser- bold thesis statement yeah there's, <laughs> there's a sort of serene uh wonderfulness where they come into town ned Beatty is being this like big city slicker asshole loud mouth how, yeah i do love how everybody is kind of being rude to the to the locals and it's not like the locals all decide to exact revenge on them a totally different group of locals uh decides to prey on them but but it's that classic horror movie thing of the protagonists are being punished in act two for dickishness in act one and the red the retribution is always way worse than is actually deserved but the exactly yeah exactly it's a it's a thing where they're all kind of rude to the locals lewis is really rude to the locals and he's basically this like he's almost like a libertarian dickhead who like just doesn't believe in like listening big gary johnson guy yeah (laughs) he is totally gary johnson guy and he just believes in himself and he's got this sort of like big brash bravura machismo that like is pr- pretty easily deflated by uh <laughs> getting uh, his leg torn open um, yeah which which is the other reason why besides just the upending the action movie star conventions that's the other reason that it's great is because he he was the person who thought he could conquer everything and besides drew he's like the first uh he's like the first person out it's like it's like when an asshole friend brings you to a party that you're not all that interested in with a bunch of weirdos and then leaves halfway through. You're like, well, what the fuck are we still doing here? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You're like, I just got stranded. And yeah, he helps them get into this this rafting situation, which is clearly really unsafe, but kind of fun at, for them at first. Which is funny, because if, even if their journey kept going on, even if they hadn't met the, the, the rapists, they still could have gotten dangerously hurt. <laughs> yeah. When they the, stop communicating. It's true. Stop communicating. This film should be used in, you know, like workplace seminars to <laughs> team bonding experiences. Okay. okay, now what did Drew do wrong in handling <laughs> this situation? Well, uh, Drew, whined like a baby. You bury the body. And it's true. And a life raft. Yeah. Life the body 
is our W2s this year, guys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Drew dies because he's um, he's reckless. and he's Sorry, not to him. interrupt, but you guys don't think he got shot, right? No, I think he committed suicide. Okay. okay. I think he either committed suicide or he's just so dazed by his, his actions that he's just like, I don't really care if I fall in. Like, sort of passive suicide. Right. Yeah, I think it was just like a panic attack or something. Yeah. So he's yeah. just driving so fast. He didn't, and I don't think he consciously didn't put on his vest. I think that was uh, unconscious. I think he was like, we need to get away from the body as fast as possible. Because there's a really great, like, mini scene where they're all cleaning their hands and faces after burying the body. And they're sprinting away from the, from the scene of the crime. And... That kind of leads into the next part. But yeah, so Drew um, Drew is sort of this like voice of reason and uniting uniting force in the group. Um, he's, he plays the guitar and everybody loves it. And he, he's sort of the only one that really cares to engage with the locals. And he's the only one that has like an actual moral compass. And then it's uh, his moral compass is so strong that it throws him off. So the music and then the music when it returns later is like during very specific sort of sad scenes and one of the scenes where it plays is when he's just being dragged along the side of the boat as a corpse drew is gone their moral compass is gone there's just only one way forward and it's it's this i guess i guess this is the point where i talk a little bit about sort of some of the sociological and kind of you know, geopolitical stuff going on here, cultural I stuff love here. That. Yeah, really yeah. Let's do let's questions. do that, and then we can um, just do just quick final thoughts, and then we'll do plugs and stuff like that. Right. Well, um, the early 1970s was uh, a very important time in the history of the South, especially in the state of Georgia, because this was the real emergence of the New South. It was a place now where. There was going to be greater diversification of industry, modernization of the countryside, more industrialization, more participation in the political process, especially by African-Americans, especially in Atlanta, Georgia, which is where the four characters are coming from. It's where they're, they're coming down from. They're coming from the very heart of the New South, which is Atlanta, which was one of the first southern cities to have a black mayor, to really diversify its industry, to move into the latter half of the 20th century with a real forward-facing momentum. And these characters are very much the symbol of that. They're, they're white-collar, kind of suburban. Um, they seem to be fairly educated bureaucrats and businessmen and things like that. And they're going out into the countryside. And it's the countryside that is being quite literally swept away and buried with the creation of this new dam. And it's one of the last ones in the South in a process that began back in the 1920s. And what they're going to do is they're basically going to flood this area. They're going to evacuate this town that's been there alongside the river and alongside the mountains. In doing so, they're going to necessarily destroy this town and this community in order to create the image and the reality of the new South as it exists. So what the characters in deliverance are doing are in a way, it's a kind of time travel movie where these characters from the early 1970s, Jimmy Carter, Atlanta, new South 
are going out into an area that is connected with the past, that is considered hidebound, that is considered antiquated and backwards, with all the stereotypes that that implies. And they're going there and they're encountering the heritage and the history that is inevitably going to be, to use a word that's brought up in the film multiple times, buried by the forces of the New South, as represented by this new dam and the flooding and everything like that. Now, that brings up the question of stereotyping. And a lot of the stuff that we looked at back in the day with this class was the idea that the film is demonizing the Appalachian rural dwellers at the expense of the suburbanite, sort of more middle-class characters. And there's definitely an argument to be made for that. There's an argument to be made that the film... Um, demonizes and dehumanizes the Appalachian characters. There's a lot of shots where they're sort of um, walking behind the trees and they almost seem as much part of the landscape as as anything. And they're referred to as mountain men and they seem to be connected to nature and to the mountains and everything like that. Which, you know, is as a symbol works and is strong and is effective. But of course, it can be considered kind of problematic that you consider one group of people to be connected with land while you are considered able to go into the river and go back to your office on Monday. But that brings me to what I think is one of the central kind of, not quite allegories or metaphors or anything, but one of the central sort of ideas of the film. And this is brought up right in the first scene at the beginning where you hear people talking about what they're going to do on the trip and they talk about, oh, we're going to go out and we're going to rape that river. And I thought it was honestly, I was a little on the nose, but whatever. I totally forgot that, like, it was that on the nose. Like, right. And there's there was something else, too, and I, I did not write down in my notes, but there's some other moment, too, uh, during the voiceover where it's like, Oh, they're literally just describing what happens later in this movie. Right, right. And um, and these characters, these suburbanites, think that what they're able to do is they can go and have a fun weekend showing off their manliness on the river. They kind of forget or ignore or just overlook is that people live there. Uh, this is not just a playground for them. This isn't a theme park. This isn't, you know... They can't just uh, – it's not It's not the uh, Batman-Penguin ride at Six Flags Kentucky Kingdom. Um, <laughs> yeah, and uh, – so, so, sorry. Um, go for I it. Did, I did have a note on that. Um, the other thing too is that they it's, – it's the last gas for this entire area. Like, yes. You're right. It's going away and they're the ones who are not even part of the area. They're, they're uh, celebrating. It's like if yes. someone's tearing down your house and your neighbors come over to be like, Woo, we're not going to see this house anymore. Let's use all the bathrooms while we can. Right, right. Like, and it, well, it's, it's that poverty tourism kind of thing that yeah. you – Yeah, and it's, it's, it's one of the characters towards the beginning before they actually get out on the river where they're talking to one of the locals and they go, uh, oh, we're, we're going out to the river. And he goes, why the hell would you want to do that? Because, of course, to the people who live there and have to deal with what that means and the flooding and the effect that it has on the agriculture and the environment. The river's not something romantic to them. It's a reality. The river's not yeah. something abstract. It's like that great line in uh, Lawrence Arabia, which is my all-time favorite film, where Lawrence is talking about how much he loves the desert. And I think it's Alec Guinness is the Arab prince who says something like, you know, us Arabs here in Arabia, we don't like the desert. 
we, you know, we have to live with it. We don't, we, it's, we don't have fun in the desert. We don't enjoy it. It's, it's, it's miserable. Um, and, and that's a bit what, like what's going on here where these characters who are outsiders think that they're above it. They think that they're superior to people who live there, think that they can go down to the river. They can conquer it just because it's there and then go back. And they even bring up, oh, you know, the first, uh, first people who uh saw this saw it from a canoe it's like well you know who who exactly are you referring to here are you referring to the you know the the, the american indians are you referring to sort of the i guess it would be the spanish explorers who were around that area and then the english but anyways um it's it's that idea of always um and i think this is uh, i don't even want to really open this this live conversation because we'll be here all night but I will say it's it's that thing where you only self-identify with the protagonists of history, where yeah. like you're you're not the asshole who, uh, quote unquote asshole who like l- let the land be taken from him. If you go back in history, if you were there, you would just be like those explorers taking the land. It's it's that it's it's that it's it's the joke about how no That's one's a really ever reincarnated. That that no one has ever been like, oh, in my past life I was a janitor, or in my past, it's like everyone always see like everyone is is so focused on myth making about themselves and their story and how it's connected to the protagonists of old that they forget ninety nine point nine percent of the people are not those people, including yourself, probably. Yep. And what's uh really interesting about the story is that it takes these characters from their relatively privileged position and it takes that away from them um, so that they're deprived of their technological advantages in the industrialized New South and Atlanta. So they're out in the canoes and they're, they're subject to the elements, they're subject to the rapids. Um, it takes away their even their air mattress is taken away, but um, <laughs> it, and not only that, but when they're placed, it, when when they when they encounter the two mountain men who sexually assault them, they're even there. They're at, they're actually at a technological disadvantage compared to locals because they don't have uh, John Voight and Ned Beatty don't have anything. The locals have a gun, which puts them at a technological advantage. And then as the film goes on, they get. They lose more and more stuff where they're essentially reduced to the most primitive possible state. So it's it's sort of teaching them that, um, well, you know, you, you, you might think that it's fun to cast aside your civilized trappings and play uh, river folk for a weekend, but the 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 realities of it are are much more brutal and um it's not a theme park you know so that's yeah. that's yeah and that's the best argument for why this is a horror movie is because it's it's about people being stripped down to their bare essentials and having to strive on despite their their adversary having no give to it um it's a tale of survival where Nature doesn't just yield at the end. Nature fights them until they're finally there's no more nature to get past. They they land at like a bunch of car heaps, and they're like, "All right, we're back at civilization." Yeah, it's even the vernacular. Like, and people still talk about it this way, which has always seemed strange to me. But that idea, like, we're gonna beat this river, and and Burrell's like, "No one beats the river." It's like you're sailing on a fucking waterway, like, and you've you've created this competition between you and nature that doesn't exist. That's why I like Werner Herzog's film so much. Like nature is indifferent to this competition that you're foisting upon it, and even kind of viewing it as a competition 
uh, put yourself in a situation where you feel there is something to beat or destroy or tame right. and and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and that brings up to a potentially problematic thing, which is the equivocating nature with the people who live there. But, of course, horror, horror films are – and sort of inherently based on kind of exploitation and kind of irrational fears. So you got to cut some slack. So to uh, the point of whether or not the film is, is too stereotypical or too, you know, um, demonizing or anything like that, I, I don't think it is, especially when you compare it to a lot of the other films in this kind of subgenre. I think this one is particularly a target of academics because it of its um, – status and its kind of prestige. I mean, this was an Academy Award nominated picture. This was nominated for Best Picture uh, in 1972. And yeah, it's still, I mean, like I said, it's on the AFI. It's the mm-hmm. on the 15, it's the number 15 on the most thrilling movies of all time. I mean, right. It has, it, it's yeah. carried its kind of like prestige cash through the, through the decades. Right, right. And the higher the pedestal, the easier the target you are. Right. Um, so I think it's, it's good to both recognize that um, people of this region might resent that one of their few depictions is as either you know helpless bumpkins who are just kind of going to get pushed to the new their new uh, their new town or um, murderous rapists. Uh, they might yeah, resent and, that, but and that... the movie does have a ton of sympathy for them and treats mm-hmm. them as, oh like absolutely the average person as like. They just want to get on with their lives. And that's they don't want to be harmed. And that's what makes the dueling banjo scene so great. Is because yeah. is because um uh Ronnie Cox comes in there with his guitar and he's the most open minded and the most um compassionate out of all of them. And he's playing his guitar and there's this sort of um Let's say he's inbred looking and put it at that uh, kid who has uh, a banjo and they're they're play they're having a little kind of musical trade off and they're equals there even though this kid clearly has no economic um, superiority no sort of sociological superiority thing like that and he might even be sort of developmentally disabled he in this exchange that they're having guitar versus banjo he is 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 not only equal to the very talented ronnie cox but he's actually by the end of it he's he's very because he's playing his banjo even faster and ronnie cox loses his place so there that's 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 a sign of the uh of the of the um the the kind of um sort of being trumped by by the by the 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 strengths of the appalachian culture and the 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 people there and you know everyone seems to be having a good time it's you know even though they've been jerks before that they're they're they seem to be enjoying themselves and then at the end of the film ned Beatty and um john void are are having this nice country dinner with this family at their but you know and it's a very hard scene for john void because he's suffering from ptsd but uh you you do get the sense that he is enjoying sharing this kind of communion with these other characters and that there is a kind of a, a, a warmth and a, um, a, a welcoming aspect that is, you know, sort of light years away from, you know, uh, the toothless guy with the shotgun. <laughs> well, and I also think the the local people, with the exception of the, the two rednecks in the middle of the movie that kind of start the decline and the, the horror, they are inarguably the best people in this movie. They're accepting their fate. They're still welcoming of strangers. They're still there to give food to Ned Beatty and John Voight's characters. Like, I think you can almost look at it as a morality tale of, like, don't judge a book by its 
cover and don't demonize people. So I, I mean, I think they, I think they definitely come off looking better than than most of the quote unquote city boys or our protagonists. Yeah. Do you guys want to run into final thoughts? We're yeah. I mean, I'll, I the tooth, but I think everything yeah. we've been talking about has been super interesting. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to make my final thoughts super quick because the only thing I'll say is that this is a fantastic movie. If you saw it like I did in high school, I think this is an easy like when you start getting into cinephilia and you're like, this is such an easy touchstone to watch early on. My guess is that a lot of people that are listening to this haven't seen it in 5, 10, 15 years and maybe saw it high school, college. But I guess my recommendation for anyone is if you haven't seen it, see it. If it's been a few years since you've seen it, uh, see it again because uh, because I think the cultural memory of this is overpowers the movie to a lot of extent, and maybe maybe it's just me, and maybe you're like, yeah, I everything you guys have been talking about, I saw it ten years ago, and it resonates with me, and I I got it then, you asshole. But um, also, this person is you know tone it down a little. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are children but, present. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's good to bring up a hypothetical person then then insult his tone yes. <laughs> uh, or have concerns about his tone. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I, watch watch it again. It's weird to basically say, hey, you know this classic that everyone agrees is good and I've barely heard a bad word about it, uh, give or take an Ebert review. You should watch it again because it should be rediscovered. But I really feel like that's the case with this movie. Like, uh, It feels like it's ripe for rediscovery in what an amazing uh, nuanced portrait of both uh, the changing times and the horror of dealing with, like, unspeakable trauma. Yeah, that's perfect. Michael, do you have any final thoughts on the movie? Uh, yeah, just a, just a real quick thing. Um, it's a really good movie. It's extremely well made, very well acted. Um, it's better than uh, probably your your imagination of it would have you believe it's 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 um there's more to it than your imagination of it would have you believe um if you have a strong stomach it's not that intense but if you've got um you know it's it's done it's not done tastelessly um but if you if you if you can handle that kind of violence and you know scenes of you know um Super class. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's uh, it's 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 very well done. I recommend checking it out. It won't take up too much of your time, and you'll have seen a classic and one of John Voight's best performances. So it gets a thumbs up from me. Yeah, and uh, this is our third entry on Redneck Horror. And like I said, I initially when we were watching the movie, I was like, ah, crap, kind of hemmed and hawed on uh, having this been included because I hadn't seen it so long. I didn't realize that it was also sort of a reaction to scary rednecks, murder, murder outsiders type movie. And I think it functions perfectly in what we need it, need it to be for this month, which is to add some, uh, some sympathy for locals and to maybe cast some, uh, some, uh, a criticism on the, the, the outsider tourists that sometimes show up in these these horror movies. You know, they're, they're going into a land that is not theirs and don't treat it with the utmost respect. And uh, this movie has them sort of destroying themselves from within um, up against the land that they, they took for granted. And uh, yeah, I, I'm so glad that we, we watched it. Yeah, thank you very much, Michael, for coming on. You you were a, a fantastic guest. We're definitely going to have to peer pressure you into into coming on again. Yes. All right. It was my pleasure. <laughs> yeah, I can. Uh, this was this was a ton of fun. Um, 
I was uh, both both movie wise and yeah, uh, I think I'll have to cut out quite a bit of laughter for myself in the first forty five minutes because. <laughs> I was dying. So I yeah, know that if you come back on again, do not expect uh, as good of a game as Ultimate Bad Boy. All right, all right, personal. That's a that's a personal highlight. Right. I think uh, for for all of us. Let's all let's be the, honest for the show. Yeah, yeah, for the show in general. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, Michael, before we before we just talk about uh, the last two weeks of Redneck Horror Month and what we're going to be covering. Um, why don't you, why don't you plug, I know you yes. already mentioned, obviously, the book you have coming up, right. but any other articles, anything else? Um, no, well, okay, so this is my, this is what I got to plug. Um, so I'm a writer at the Solute, that's T-H-E hyphen S-O-L-U-T-E dot com. Uh, it's a website founded by us, uh, a lot of us former, um, Dissolve commenters. It's a really great website. I was one of the, I was one of the founding members. Uh, I don't write for, um... As much as I'd like, um, I, I'm work, working on my master's right now, so I, I only have uh, occasional time to fire off articles. But the whole website as a whole is great. Uh, we got a lot of great people, a lot of great perspectives, uh, and my stuff is good, so read it. Um, <laughs> and so uh, I'm plugging that. Check out that website. That's thesolute.com. And I've got the Oliver Stone collection, or excuse me, the Oliver Stone experience, which uh, comes out, I believe, September 21st. By that, uh, it's going to be fucking amazing. It's going to be a coffee table book like no other coffee table book. Uh, and uh, I might, fingers crossed, um, I it appears that I'm going to be doing uh, a book release event in New York City uh, this September for the release of that book. Um I'm sure it'll be open to some members of the public, but I don't know how open. But if you're able to attend, I don't know the exact date yet. We're still working on that. But um, as the first time publicly announced it, but um, yeah, I believe it'll be it'll be Oliver Stone, Matzler Sites, and myself. So I will be the uh, the Curly Joe of the Three Stooges. There, like the <laughs> one that no, you're not really there to see, but you know it, it helps. Um, yeah, it's fucking awesome. Well, we can also uh, add more information, uh, mention it on the show. In case uh, more comes out. Yeah. yeah. So that's what I've got to plug. That's that's yeah, it. Awesome. And we're we're very uh, we're very proud of one of our uh, one of our own. Yay. Um, sort of I- get, getting published and, and all that. <laughs> Local boy made good. Well deserved. <laughs> um, but yeah, thank um, you very much, uh, Michael. Um yeah, the, this was a terrific good time. Um, yeah, of course. So we'll, 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 wrap, we'll wrap this that, up. That, uh, that sounded like a mistranslated name for like having fun, like terrific good time. <laughs> it's it's that's the Japanese name of this program. Yeah, yeah. They're remaking this podcast in Japan, and it's it's going to be big. It's going to be big. So next week we're going to have uh, Devil's Rejects, which will just be Aaron and me. And then after that, we're going to have wrap up uh, Redback Horror Month, the Kill Billies Month with uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2 with Zach Groton, a uh, returning guest and uh, the guy who does our artwork. So, uh, oh. yeah, thank you very much. I didn't realize yeah, that. We're, uh, yeah, Zach's been on uh, a few times. You should definitely listen to uh, some of his, his previous episodes. Uh Superman 2 ended up being a good episode despite some huge technical issues. Um, but yeah, so uh, yeah, if you guys keep watching, we'll also keep watching. And also, like, listen, because that's how you experience us. Uh, we're also, um, do you want to announce? Us watch when you're watching it. 
<laughs> watch it out um <laughs> one other thing too guys remember uh we do have a facebook page like i said we're gonna try to use that as much as possible to uh discuss um any any like friends of the shows activities that they're doing run polls give other ideas link articles if you do like listening to our show the easiest way to support us is to spend a couple minutes and rate and review us on amazon uh because that does help our rating and like i said we have a lot of good stuff coming up in the next few months um we, we're super excited to announce. I think next week we'll be announcing what September's theme is, and we can talk about that more then. So, again, thank you so much for joining us, Michael. This was a blast, um, and uh, we hope to have you on soon. The blast was all mine. <laughs> Good, because we want you back. <laughs> Good. Um, yeah, so uh, to quote uh, everyone's favorite superhero, uh, Wolverine, uh, keep watching. Did you say wolf arene like Wolf Arene? Watch it, bub, on We Love to Watch. <laughs> Deliver us from this episode. Love to stay.